WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. See? Yeah. And NPR. Okay, let us begin. Hello, hello. <laughs> uh, with a, an unusual encounter, which comes from this lady here. I'm, I'm Susan Schaller, and... Where do you want me to start? Her story starts, well, actually, it starts kind of abruptly. I was uh, indeed riding a bicycle to high school. And a catering truck hit me. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I was put in the hospital with a concussion. I was 17 years old. And the concussion was bad enough that um, it slowed my brain enough that I couldn't read. And so naturally, I couldn't go to school. Which sucked. For her. At 17, I was very much a nerd, <laughs> and I was bored out of my mind. So imagine Susan sitting there in the hospital. Mm. One day, one of her friends... A friend of mine who was just a little older and had graduated the semester before me suggested going to the nearby university and uh, crashing classes. So Wait a second. Why, why, why would you go, if your brain was working slowly, why wouldn't you go well, swimming? I couldn't, I couldn't read, but I could listen and I could hear, and, I, and, and the person was saying that, oh, it's a lot better than high school. <laughs> and so one day she was at this college. Just kind of wandering down a random hallway. And I opened the first door on the left. That was the accident that changed my whole life, just picking that door. At the front of the room, there was this older guy. He was thin, he was bald, and he was tracing shapes in the air with his hands. It was as if there were pictures being painted in the air, and then they immediately disappeared. Then another picture appeared. I was mesmerized. Uh The professor was signing. This class? was actually one of the first classes to teach sign at a regular hearing university ever. I had, I had also walked into history but didn't know it. Fast forward five years, Susan now is fluent in sign. She moves to Los Angeles. It's the late 1970s. And I was snatched and put into interpreter training programs because at that time there were very, very few interpreters. And I found myself in a classroom. In a community college. In something called a reading skills class. So she walks into the class, sees kids all over the classroom making big, excited gestures one to the other. And at the door, I saw this man holding himself. Kind of off by himself. Making his own straight jacket. She went over to the instructor and she pointed at the guy. She said, Who, who's that guy over there? And the instructor said, well, um, he, he was born deaf. His uncle, he has this kind of insistent uncle who, who brings him here every day. We, we don't know exactly what to do with him, though. And What did this guy look like? He w- was a beautiful, um, well, I, now I know, I don't know if I would have had that in my head at the time, but a beautiful-looking Mayan, you know, high cheekbones and black hair, black eyes. And something about his eyes was, caught her attention. He was studying mouths. And I, I walked up to him and said, hello, my name is Susan. And this is where things start to get a little weird. He looks at her, and instead of signing his name, whatever it was, he brings up his hands and signs right back to her. Hello, my name is Susan. Susan, like, shakes her head and says, no, no, I'm Susan. And he responds, no, no, I'm Susan. Everything you said he tried to say? Exactly. I I call it visual echolalia. And I remember thinking, why is he doing this? I mean, Susan, did he, did he look like he had some kind of disability or, or condition? He was, um, 
he was intelligent. I wouldn't have been able to answer if you had asked me, how can you see intelligence? But you can actually see intelligence in people's eyes. He was just missing something. To copy me meant that he didn't really know what I was doing. And that's when it occurred to him. This man doesn't have language. Wait, how old was this guy? He was 27 years old. And, and in all that time, no one had taught him sign language or anything? Well, he didn't know he was deaf. He was born deaf. He didn't know there was sound. Really? 27 years, no idea that there was sound. He could see the mouth moving, could see people responding. He thought we figured all the stuff out visually. And he thought, I must be stupid. And so here's the question for our hour. This is Radiolab. I'm Chad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. Words. What do words do for us? Are they necessary? Can you live without them? Can you think without them? Can you dream without them? Can you... That's enough. Can you swim without them? No, that's enough. Back to the story. (laughs) So this man that Susan met, we don't actually know his real name, but when she wrote about him in her book, A Man Without Words, she called him Ildefonso. There they are, sitting in the classroom. She's right there with him. Of course, she's wondering... What have you been doing for 27 years? <laughs> so she thinks, well, let me see if I can teach him some just basic sign language. In an interesting case, she takes out a book and makes the sign book. But the sign for book, it looks like opening up a book. So he thought I was ordering him to open a book. So he grabs the book and he opens it. Because he thought I was asking him to do something. It was very difficult. If, if I gave him the sign for standing up, he thought I wanted him to stand up. And so I couldn't, I couldn't have a conversation with him. And it was the most frustrating thing I have ever done in my life. Wait a second. How long did this go on for? Well, uh, weeks. It was weeks. Wow. Oftentimes, when we said goodbye or just left, we couldn't really say goodbye, I really believed that we wouldn't see each other again. And I was oftentimes very surprised when he would be sitting there at the table. And I think sometimes he looked surprised that I showed up. (laughs) But after a couple of weeks of him constantly miming, copying me. She had an idea. Perhaps. It's just possible that if, uh, if I died tomorrow, I would have had only one really, really good thought in my life. And this was it. I thought, I'm going to ignore him. Huh. I taught an invisible student. I stopped talking to him, and I stopped having eye contact, and I set up an empty chair. And then she says she would hold up to this empty chair a picture of a cat. And I was trying to explain to this invisible student that this creature, a cat, so I'd be miming a cat and petting a cat, and then I signed the sign for cat. Then she would hop to the other seat, the invisible student's seat, and pretend to get it. Oh, oh, I know, it's my facial expression. Oh, I get it. So and you're then, playing all the parts. You're both the teacher and the invisible student. That's right, that's wow. right. Doing all these crazy things, and he just watched me. He stopped copying her, which was good. But I do this over and over and over for days and days and days. And she says he just didn't get it. He was, he looked bored a lot of times. But one day, in the middle of one of these endless pretend student exercises, something happened. Out of the corner of her eye, she sees him shift his body. And he looked, it's interesting how his body was upright and he looked like something was about to happen. He looked around the room. This is a 27-year-old man, and he looks around the room as if he had just landed from Mars, and it was the first time he ever saw anything. Something was about to happen. His eyes grew wider, she says, and then wider. And then... He slaps his hands on the table. Oh, everything has a name. And he looks at me in this demanding way, and I sign table. And he points to the door, and I sign door, and he points to the clock, and he points to me, and I sign Susan. And then he started crying. He just collapsed, and he started crying. What is it that happens in human beings when we get symbols and we start trading symbols? It changes our thinking, it changes our ideas of, of, it's it's no longer the thing, a table that we eat on, but there's something about the symbol table that makes the table look different. Ildefonso was in love. 
he was in love. It's like everything has a name. And for the first couple of weeks, he had this, this list of names that kept growing and growing. Paper, eagle, clock, green. I kept copying words for him. Cats, alligator, cat, cardinal. Gave him the sign for door. 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 Then I would door. write D-O-O-R. Serpent, see that. And he Strawberries. folded this paper. Paper. As if. It was treasure. treasure, and he would pull it out every day, and he would Lion. carefully unfold it. Tiger. And he would add to it. Orange juice. Apple. Doge. Thinking. Leaf. Horse. Leaf. Idea. Add to it. Lamb. Blue. Table. Bird. Wall. The name. Add to it. Pig. Left. Front. Right. Cows. Hawk. Left. Of the blue wall. Octopus. Symbol. Treasure. Eggs. What is it that happens in human beings when we get symbols? Symbols. You know, once you have begun to put words onto things, you can look at a thing, say this symbolic sound, table, and the person opposite you knows that you're talking about. But she seems to be saying something deeper, though, that like when you get the word for table, that suddenly the table, like this table right yeah, here, looks different. Like it's somehow the word changes the world in some fundamental way. Now, I don't know if that's true about the table thing, but consider what happens when you put words together, okay, when you link them up. Good, okay. So I want to tell you about this experiment. Fantastic. That I learned about from a a fellow I talk to sometimes, Charles. I'm Charles Fernihoe. I'm a psychologist at Durham University in the UK. Fernihoe. And uh, when I first read about this experiment in Charles's book. Called A Thousand Days of Wonder. It blew my mind out of my nose and onto the book. (laughs) It was a little messy. I never want to be with you in the library. <laughs> it takes a little journey to get to the mind-blowing part, mm-hmm. but um, luckily, I'll let Charles explain it. The whole thing happens in a room. Yeah, you're put into this room, which is colored completely white. The walls are white, the ceiling's white, the floor's white. So it's all white. All white. Everything's white. And you can tell where you are to the extent that some of the walls are longer than others. So on your left Are we in a rectangle, side, is what you're describing? Yeah, it's a rectangular room. Are you with me so far? I'm with you so far. Okay, just to give you a sense of the baseline conditions here, imagine you are a rat in this room, okay? And somebody comes along and hides an object in one corner of the room. What? It can be anything. I mean, for rats, you'd use food. Like a biscuit or something? Yeah. They hide a biscuit in one of the four corners. In one corner. You see it. Okay. But before you can get to it, they pick you up by your tail, spin you around a bunch of times. So you don't know where you are. You don't know which direction you're facing it. And then they say, right, now go and find the biscuit. So if you do this with a rat, what will happen is it'll say, all right, let me go find the biscuit, and it will go to one corner which looks right. But of course, the room also looks like that if you turn around through 180 degrees and face exactly the opposite direction. Because it's a rectangle. So uh, they get it right about 50% of the time. Because corners of rectangles, two of them are identical. Yeah. All right, so uh, <coughs> should we get on with this? Because I'm well aware of this rectangles. Is, I'm just, uh, I just needed to get that out of the way because okay. the cool part is coming up I now. Hope so, so what the experimenters did next mm-hmm. is they took one of the four white walls mm-hmm. and they turned it blue. So imagine this scenario. You're in this room. You've got these four white walls, or rather three white walls. Well, one and, of them is blue. Right. Yeah. Well, now you're not confused anymore. You can you can relate everything to the blue wall. You can be like, oh, the corner with the biscuit was left of the blue wall, or right of the blue wall. Well, they get to the left. You now have the blue wall as a... Navigational clue. Yes. That makes sense. You know, we would all be able to do that. That's not going to be difficult for us. All right. <laughs> we got to the good part yet? Yeah, it's coming. It's coming. Turns out, though... The rats, he says. They, they're still scoring 50-50. What? It's as if they can't take any notice of the blue wall. Even with the blue wall, they're only finding the biscuit 50% of the time. Wait a second, can a rat see color? Yeah, rats can do color. They do color pretty well. Okay. They also do left, right, just fine. But what they can't do is connect those two bits of information together. In other words, they can only... Well, they can do left. That they can do. They can do blue... Do blue, but it's they're both separate. They can't do left of blue. These different kinds of knowledge can't talk to each other. How does anyone know that? I mean, who, who, what rats have been interviewed for this survey? What? 
they they infer this based on studying the rats. So the rat doesn't have what? Doesn't have the neurons? Doesn't have the what? Doesn't he? Doesn't have the rat can't do it. That's just, that's all that <laughs> you need to know. And and I'm gonna make it weirder right now. Neither can some humans. I spent the first. 10 or 15 years of my scientific life studying creatures who don't talk yet. That's Elizabeth Spelke. She's a psychologist at Harvard, quite famous for her work with, um, Kai. as you can hear, babies. And I was interested in uh, their abilities in relation to abilities of other animals. Come on, get up. We're going to go into the monkey room. So she began the baby development lab, which is filled with toys, and on any given day, five or six really tiny kids. How old is she? She's six months. <laughs> Who's this? I'm a big kid. Yeah. Toddlers, too. How old are you? Three and a half. Big time. So, at a certain point, Elizabeth Spelke decided to build a version of the white room in this lab because she wondered if rats have so much trouble connecting the idea of left to blue, what about surely uh, baby humans? A self-respecting... 18-month-old human child will succeed in putting them together. But no. (laughs) What we find is that children behave just like the rats. Just like the rats. Just like the rats. Really? Just like the rats or almost just like the rats? Well, we don't test them with food. We don't test them with digging. So in superficial (laughs) ways, superficial features of the studies are different. But she says kids like the rats cannot connect the idea of left to the idea of blue. They just can't do it. And they can't do it at one. They can't do it at two. They can't do it at three. Four. Five. And we find that those children start performing like adults around six years of age. Now I'm interested. Good. Something happens at the ripe old age of six. It is shockingly late, right? Yeah. Well, something happens at the age of six that suddenly allows the kid to connect concepts like left to concepts like blue. And the question is what? What happens? Several people have suggested that one candidate for a process that's doing this is language. What do you mean it's the language? Kids are talking, certainly at three, four, five, and six, they're talking like a... (laughs) Like, uh, you know, too much. But what they're not, what they haven't yet started to use is spatial language, and particularly the kinds of spatial language that adults would use in this situation to describe what they're doing. And somewhere around the age of six, they start to use phrases like left of the blue wall. And those aren't just words that come out of the child's mouth. Liz thinks that inside the child's brain, what that phrase does is link these concepts together. Clink. And at that moment, left of the blue the child leaves the rats behind. I, I can't, you should, that was that, she doesn't think that kids have that. Well, let me put it to you a different way. Okay. And this is my best understanding of what she thinks. Her basic idea is that a child's brain begins as a series of islands. And on one island, way over here in the brain, you've got, say, color. You can call that the blue island. That's the part of you that perceives the color blue. Way on the other side of the brain, you've got the part of you that perceives spatial stuff, like left. Left, 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 left. left. Third, objects like wall. Wall, 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 wall. These things are there from the beginning, but they're separate. Then you get the words left, blue, wall. And then the child, for the first time, comes upon the phrase left of the blue wall. And in that moment, all the islands come together. (laughs) It is literally the phrase itself, she says, that creates that internal connection. Everybody's always talked about how language is this incredible tool for communication. It allows us to exchange information with other people so much more richly and effectively than other animals can. But language also seems to me to serve as a mechanism of communication between different systems within a single mind. There you go. Wouldn't it be just as possible, just listen to me here, Mm -hmm. that the kid's brain is developing some new connections and what follows then follows from the changes in the brain? So the words are like an after, after. Yeah, after. After fact? After effect. Yeah, well, that's a good, that's, um, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) The experimenters actually accounted for that. Well, what the experimenters did next is that they thought, okay, if language is adding this extra element, let's try and knock it out. How would you do that? Would you, like, shoot something into their brain that kills the language part or something? Um, It's a much simpler way of doing it and a much more humane (laughs) thing that you can do. What we did is put adults in the room. And then she says she gave them an iPod. They've got headphones on. Playing through those headphones is someone talking. Yep. 
And their job while they're in the room is to just repeat what the person is saying. Continuously listening to speech and repeating it the whole time they were in there. It's actually a really hard thing to do. If you've ever tried shadowing somebody speaking, I mean, if you try... Can we we try it? (laughs) You go, and I'll I'll shadow you. Okay, Jan, okay, I'm going to start speaking gonna now, start and speaking I want you now, to say now, it right back to me, exactly as I Exactly as I say it. Oh my God, it's starting to hurt my head. <laughs> That's really hard, actually. It is hard, yeah. And what that does is it knocks out your capacity to use language for yourself. Basically battering the words out of the uh, adult's head. Why are they doing this again? Well, like they want to see, like, if you blast the words out of somebody's head. What would happen? Can they find the biscuit? Will they be able to form that simple thought left of the blue wall, or will they be like the rats who can't? And? And we actually got very dramatic results. They went right back to being like the rats. Wow. Yeah. But Charles, what I'm wondering is if language allows you to construct a thought that is so basic as the biscuit is left of the blue wall, what is thought without language? Well, I don't think it's very much at all. What do you mean? I'm going to put it in a different way, and this involves making quite a controversial statement. I don't think very young children do think. Like think, period? (laughs) Was there a period at the end of that sentence? I don't think they think in the way that I want to call thinking, which is a bit of a cheat, but let me say what I mean by thinking. (laughs) If you reflect on your own experience, if you think about what's going on inside your head as you're just walking to work or sitting on a subway train, much of what's going on in your head at that point is actually verbal. I want to suggest that the central thread of all that is actually language. It's a stream of inner speech. That's what most of us think of as thinking. Well, on the other hand, What I'm most aware of when I'm reflecting is the stuff that I can't put into words. I think that he's exaggerating the role of of language here. Yes. This all really hinges on how you would define thinking. Yes. And Liz would say, take a musician. Like, I'll give you my example, Bill Evans. Here is a form of thought that carries you through a definite sequence of Phrases, feelings, emotions, changes. And there are no words. But there's something that we get access to when we gain a full natural language that we can use not only to communicate with other people, but with ourselves. We have two Shapiros. Test, testing, test, 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 test. Language is fundamentally a combinatorial system. As we head up the steps, where, what is this? This is a we're going to Columbia, Columbia University. University. See, we'd gotten interested in the last thing that Liz Belke said about language being a combinatorial thing. System. Right. And that led us to Columbia. Uh, here's the deal. Seven minutes late, which is you have words now. You have words in combination now. Now you can play with the combinations. And that, as you'll hear, just us three then, right? It's just us three. Good. Opens up. A kind of infinity. Head to foot now as he total ghouls, hardly tricked with blood of fathers, mothers, daughters, sons, baked and pasted with the parching streets that lend a tyrannous and damned light to their vile murders. This is Shakespeare. When I sat in middle school and they gave her Shakespeare, roasted in wrath and fire, and thus orsized with coagulate gore. I was completely confused and I felt stupid. Can you just introduce yourself? Uh, yeah. This is James Shapiro. I'm. Uh, he is a uh, Shakespeare scholar, obviously. At Columbia University, where I've taught for uh, 25 years. And one reason he says that Shakespeare can be confusing is that often Shakespeare behaved not so much like a writer, but more like a... Like a chemist combining elements. (laughs) He's taking words and he's shoving them together, smashing them together, if you will. Combining... Sometimes these word experiments, they didn't go so well. There's the prince's orgulus. Orgulus has not no. stuck. You know, uh, that just goes in, that goes in the... <laughs> what does it mean? You got me? I mean, I should know. I thought it but look what he did just by adding a little prefix, un. There's so many words that we're now familiar with, unnerved. You know, we all know what that means. But nobody had heard unnerved, unaware, uncomfortable. He made up uncomfortable? He was the first to use that word. On a stage. Right. 
unearthly, unhand, undress, uneducated, ungoverned, unmitigated, unpublished, something that's near and dear to me, unsolicited, unswayed, unclogged, unappeased, unchanging, unreal. He made up unreal. He's the first to use it in print or on stage. Would an audience at that time have understood what the unprefix meant? Not no, real? I, I think it takes you a split second. Unreal. To kind of put that on, on the real. But then suddenly you've got this new concept that there's something real, but not. He's taking words that ordinarily are not stuck together. Things like madcap, ladybird, shoving them together, eye drops to achieve a kind of atomic power. Eye sore, eyeball. He did eyeball? Yes. That's hard to understand how someone could think of that. But it seems like it's always been there. If you ask me what his greatest gift is, he's putting them together into phrases that have stuck in our heads. So truth will out. Truth will out. What's done is done. I could go on and on. Go he on wants you on. to go, go on, on and on. Crack of doom. My favorite, dead as a doornail. A dish fit for the gods. Dog will have his day. Faint-hearted, fool's paradise. Forever and a day, foregone conclusion. The game is afoot. The game is up. Greek to me, in a pickle. In my heart of hearts. In my mind's eye. Kill with kindness. <sighs> Believe it or not, knock, knock. Who's there? Oh! <laughs> Laugh your stuff into stitches. Love is blind. What the dickens? All's well and ends well. Something wicked this way comes. And a sorry sight. Wow. <laughs> That's a champion. That's pretty fantastic. <laughs> How did he create phrases that stick in the mind, that make it seem as if they always existed? Yeah, how? You're taking out a book. Thinking of a passage here. That is maybe the biggest book I've ever seen. <laughs> Nonsense. It was at least 3,000 pages. Shakespeare doesn't write a lot about process, but there are one or two places where he does, in a poem called Lucrece, in which a woman is... Uh, raped, Lucrece's rape, and she has to write a letter to her husband explaining what happened to her, and she's struggling to, um, to find the words in which to do this, and finally she picks up the pen, and it goes, she prepares to write, first hovering over the paper with her quill, conceit and grief and eager combat fight. What wit sets down is blotted straight with will, this too curious good, this blunt and ill, much like a press of people at a door, throng her inventions which shall go before. I'll read that couplet again. Much like a press of people at a door, throng her inventions which shall go before. If you want to extrapolate from this something that Shakespeare might have himself experienced, you have a situation which all these ideas are pressing. It's like a throng of them. Who's getting through that doorway first? It's a little bit maybe like that experience you might have at a nightmare New York club where you've got like thousands of people in a tiny space and everyone's trying to push their way out and they're like, God, let me through the door, get out of my way. And it's just like this throng of images, of sounds, conceits, thoughts, ideas, and, and, and they are providing the pressure that's needed to produce words. You know what? What? This makes sense to me, this interpretation. Now, not just for Shakespeare, maybe for anybody. Certainly the guy we met at the beginning, Ildefonso. Who, who just learned words for the first time. Yeah, I mean, as you move through the world, if you're sensitive at all and you're observant, you're going to get filled up with all of these things which you have to express but can't until you get those words. Then, boom, the door opens. And thanks to James Shapiro, professor at Columbia University, whose newest book is Contested Will, Who Wrote Shakespeare? Also, thanks to our kids, Louisa Krasnow, Stella Story, and Isaiah Harrison. And also thanks to the moms that brought them in, Therese Tripoli, Carrie Donahue, and Patricia Starek. Hello, this is Susan Schaller. Radio Lab is funded in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Charles Fernie 
Radio Lab is produced by WNYC and distributed by NPR. WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, a young writer attaches himself to a rising star in politics named Barack Obama. Interesting guy. Speaks in what sound like paragraphs. Very good posture, that guy. Enviable posture. <laughs> I am a writer, and I have this, this very slight hunch, and he has none of that. A political coming-of-age story from staff writer Vincent Cunningham, plus actor and director Bradley Cooper, all on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcast. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krilwich. This is Radio Lab. This and hour, we're talking about words. Power of words. So once words enter your head, once they tickle in there, and we've just explained how that happens, sort of. Then they, you know, they're always there. Like, what, I don't, but what if they're not? What would happen if that whew, that throng that is in your head? <laughs> what if all of that stuff, whatever is in your head? Suddenly went, got yanked right out of your head. Mm. What would be left? Well, this got us thinking about a very famous talk at one of the TED conferences. I grew up to study the brain. A talk given by a neuroanatomist named Jill Bolte. Is it Bolte or Bolte? Bolte. Bolte Taylor. Yeah. And all you really need to know is that one morning in December of 1996, Dr. Taylor woke up and she had... She had a headache. I woke up to a pounding pain behind my left eye. And it was the kind of pain, caustic pain, that you get when you bite into ice cream. And it just gripped me. And then it released me. And it was very unusual for me to ever experience any kind of of pain. So I thought, okay, I'll just start my normal routine. So I got up and I jumped onto my Cardia Glider, which is a full body, full exercise machine. And I'm jamming away on this thing. And I'm realizing that my hands look like primitive claws grasping onto the bar. And I thought, whoa, I'm a weird looking thing. (laughs) So I get off the machine and I'm standing in my bathroom getting ready to step into the shower. And then I lost my balance and I'm propped up against the, the wall. And I'm asking myself, what is wrong with me? What is going on? And in that moment, my right arm went totally paralyzed by my side. In fact, a blood vessel in the left hemisphere of Jill's brain had popped. And that part of her brain was starting to shut down. And it was the shutdown that really caught our attention. In that moment, my brain chatter went totally silent. Just like someone took a remote control and pushed the mute button. So here I am in this space, and my job and any stress related to my, my job, it was gone. And I felt lighter in my body. And then all of a sudden, my left hemisphere comes back online, and it says to me, Hey, I'm having a stroke. we got to get some help. And I'm going, Oh, i got a problem. i got a problem. So it's like, Okay, okay, i got a problem. But then I immediately drifted right back out. And I affectionately refer to this space as La La Land. But it was so I'm just watching my brain become more and more uh, um, incapable of functioning. That is Jill Bolte Taylor herself. Hi, Robert. We actually got her into a studio. Hello, Jed. Hello. Because we wanted to ask her some questions about that moment when her inner voices went away. So let's, let's talk about brain chatter for a moment. Mm-hmm. In, in the story that we've told so far... You're still asking yourself questions. Yeah. Now, did that stop? It, it, on the morning of the stroke, I was doing this wafting dance between the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere. So language would come back on. 
But once I got to the emergency room and I passed out, when I woke later that afternoon, I had absolutely no language. Did you know your name? No. Did you know your address? No. Did you know about your summer from 1983? No. You know, like, my mom is so I didn't know any of that. None of it? I didn't know any of that. Just imagine, she's lying in her bed, her head is shaved, wrapped in bandages, she's had hours of brain surgery, she's got tubes coming out of her mouth, out of her nose, she's lost her career, she's lost her language. I lost all my memories. And yet, she says, sitting there in that suddenly wordless space. I had found a piece inside of myself that I had not known before. I had pure silence inside of my mind. Pure silence. Pure silence? Pure silence. What was... You know, not that little voice that, that, you know, you wake up in the morning and the first thing your brain says is, oh, man, the sun is shining. Well, imagine that you don't hear that little voice saying, man, the sun is shining. You just experience the sun and the shining. Does, is this the a- absence of reflection of any kind? Yeah. Is it just sensual intake and... Period? That is exactly what it was. It was it was all of the present moment. Did you have th- thoughts? I had joy. <laughs> I had a. I just had joy. I had, I had this magnificent experience of, I'm this collection of these beautiful cells. I'm organic. I'm this this organic. Entity Did you have a deadhead f- period by any chance? <laughs> you know, I, I missed that by a few years, oh. but I get a lot of that. And, and the other thing that she told us is that lying in that bed without words, she says she felt connected to things, to everything, in a way that she never had before. Oh, yeah. I lost all definition of myself in relationship to everything in the external world. You mean like you couldn't figure out where you ended? Mm-hmm. How much of that was was about language a little part a lot i mean oh i would say it was huge language is an ongoing information processing it's the constant reminder i am this is my name this is all the data related to me these are the my likes and my dislikes these are my beliefs i am an individual i am a single i'm a solid i'm separate from you this now is as fruity as this may sound <laughs> to pin all this on language uh we have run into this idea before a couple seasons ago uh, Paul Brocks, remember him? Yeah, sure. Neuropsychologist. Well, if you want to ask me about myself... Is, he told me that there is a theory out there, in, which he believes, actually, that all a person is in the end, like all the personhood of a person, the I or the you of a person, all that is in the end is... A story. A story you tell yourself. What we normally think of when we think about ourselves is really a story. It's, it's the story of what's happened to that body over time. I did not have that portion of my language center that tells a story. Curious little Jill. Me, Jill Bolte-Taylor, climbing the Harvard ladder. Through language. Loves dissection, cutting up things. That language was gone. I got to essentially become an infant. Again. I mean, this is the problem here. What do you mean? When you drop out of the I-ness of yourself or the story of yourself, then you are left, she says, at peace. I could argue that that's just stranded. That's stranded in the sunshine, with the wind, in the now. But, I mean, it's not like she stayed there. <laughs> that's true. We wouldn't no. be a dog to her if she had. And as she started to recover, she ran into something kind of interesting, which sounded to me... Sort of like what maybe the rats and the babies go through in the white room. She would have these disparate thoughts and then stall out. Like she couldn't bring them together. Yeah. When when people would speak to me, I would, I remembered in pictures. So um, if somebody would ask me, who's the president of the United States of America? This is a huge question. So for the next several hours, I'd be pondering president, president president. What's a president? President. And then I would get a picture in my mind of a president as a leader. Was it a picture of a specific guy? It's it was actually it still flashes into my mind. It's it's a picture of a of a silhouette of a male. A presidential profile. Like maybe the idea of a president, basically. Yeah. So that was her president. And then I had to figure out a United States. And so you Eventually, I come up with this map in my mind, this picture of the United States. And like a line drawing. So now she's got this map. She's got this silhouette of a guy. 
And she said, after hours. President, United States, President, United States. And it's like, oh, my God. She still couldn't somehow bring them together. Yeah. I didn't have the road that I had to travel in order to come up with, um, I think it was Clinton at the time. Yeah, it was Clinton at the time. Now, as Jill starts to get better. This is after eight years of hard work and recovery. and Finally, the words start to trickle back. And when they did, she says, that silence that she loved so much got pushed out. That was one of the sacrifices. For me, that was one of the sacrifices. Well. <laughs> well. <laughs> we're, doing a, we're doing a language show here, and you're the anti-queen of our language show. You're like saying, who needs it? What no, the hell? No, 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 no. No, but what I am saying is that in order for us to communicate with language, we pull ourselves away from a different kind of experience. I do believe that there are times when you need to let your, your brain chatter be quiet. But is it fair to say, this is a please agree or disagree with this statement, <laughs> uh, I think that words and language and grammar are necessary, but not half as good as wind in my hair, a smell in my nose, and that old right brain <laughs> sensual immediacy. Yeah. You know, if, um, <laughs> if I had to choose, which is essentially what you're saying, if I had to choose, um, that would be a really, really, really tough decision. Joe Bolte-Taylor is the author of, uh, what's it called? The book? My Stroke of Insight. Yes. Check our website, radiolab.org, for any details. And if you subscribe to our podcast, there is a bonus video that goes along with this hour, and it's pretty great. I'm Louis Henderson, calling from Christchurch, New Zealand. Radiolab is supported in part by the National Science Foundation and by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. I'm Jad Abumrad. Robert Krolwich. This is Radio Lab. Our topic today: words. Power of words of language. WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Radiolab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. Yep. Okay, so Nicaragua, 1970s. That's where our next story starts. You with me? Mm-hmm. So imagine you're a kid that's deaf in Nicaragua at this time. Born deaf or? or born deaf. Born, born deaf. Okay. You've always been deaf and you're the only one in your family that's deaf. So you're in this situation where everybody's talking, their mouths are moving, you can't hear it, and you don't know sign language because no one's taught you. There was no deaf school in Nicaragua then? Nothing. Okay. No deaf education of any kind. So if you were this kid, all you've really got are a couple of gestures, really crude gestures you've worked out to talk to your family and friends. But beyond that, you're cut off. Like Ildefonso, the guy we met at the beginning of this show, except in Nicaragua in the 70s there were... Hundreds, maybe thousands of these Ildefonsos. Really? Yeah. But then everything changes. In the late 70s, Hope Samosa, who was the wife of the then dictator, established a new school for special education. I think she had someone in her family who had a disability, not deafness. But the school would include deaf people, and that, says psychology professor Ann Senghaas, was a first. Because now, instead of deaf kids scattered about, they were together in the same room. There were 50 deaf kids in that first entering class. Preschool to sixth grade. In the late 70s. And for most of them, this was the first time they'd ever met another deaf person. Before, the world was going on around them and everyone was all talking and they were cut off from that. And suddenly, for the first time, they were all there and they were what was happening and they were what there was to talk about. But they didn't have a way of talking. These were 50 different kids who'd never learned a language and had 50 different sets of 
you know, like rudimentary gestures that they used. To, well, that must have been. Yeah, like 50 people with 50 different ways to try and. Ask for breakfast. Or say they want to go outside. I mean, nothing was shared. It's not like the teachers were using sign in the classroom. Everything in the classroom was Spanish. Which none of them knew. Copying it into their notebooks. A lot of it was going right over their heads. So at the beginning, things were completely confusing. But they're riding on the bus for an hour every day. And they're playing out of recess for an hour every day. And they're getting together at the park. And And no one knows how it happened. Like maybe one of the kids who was... Very charismatic. He invented a sign for, say, ball, then told it to another kid who was... Very, you know, socially active. And that second kid then spread the sign, however it worked. Over time, the signs that these 50 kids used... Started to converge into a common system. And when you step back from it all, what that means? They created a language. They, it's... They didn't just take it from somewhere else. They couldn't take it from somewhere else. They created their own. But how unusual is that? Like, this has happened with languages all over the world, but not while people were watching. And so you're saying this is the first time we've been able to watch a language being born? Yeah. Wow. And for the last 20 years, that is what Anne has been doing. She's been going to Nicaragua to that school and watching. So, um, oh, you want to describe the, so I may have gotten a recording of this, but when you arrive at the school, the buses come around, the kids are all screaming and leaning out the windows and signing to each other, and the kids pile out and they line up in rows on the basketball court that's in the center of the schoolyard, and they all sing the national hymn. And the deaf kids all sign the national hymn. And they all have one hand over their heart and sign with the other hand while the, the hearing kids sing it. And Anne the, visited uh, the school for the first time in 1990, it. about 10 years after it was formed. She'd been working at the time with a linguist. Named Judy Kegel. Studying basic linguist-type stuff. Right, trying to figure out how the verbs work and whether they have agreement with their grammatical objects. And, and along the way, her and a collaborator, Jetty Pyers, stumbled into something really surprising about the power of certain words. So to set it up, when she got there the first time in, to Nicaragua, those original 50 kids who'd invented this thing had grown up already, and there were these younger generations of kids coming in behind them, growing up with the language, using it, inventing new signs. And at a certain point, she got curious to just compare the original signers, the older kids, to the younger kids. Yeah. In terms of how they sign. So we show everyone this little one-minute cartoon about this guy who's trying to fly. He sees a bird flying, and he puts all these feathers on his body and climbs up to the top of a mountain, flaps his arms, and jumps and crashes on the ground. So she showed deaf kids of different generations this cartoon and asked them pretty simply to describe what they saw. Just describe it and sign. Describe the whole story. The differences were striking. So, um, first of all. So I'll just show you an example of each. So you're opening up a so, movie here. So this is a first cohort signer talking about. She got out her laptop and showed me some video. First of this woman in her, her, her 40s with, with dark hair and a colorful t-shirt. She was one of the original signers. And when you see older signers like her describe this guy who's trying to fly it's really spastic it's almost like they become the cartoon and she's flapping her hands she's so, so moving all around a lot of full body movements she's talking about someone who's moving in a crazy way she's going to be moving in a crazy way and um, then she showed me a, a young kid who was about eight with a backwards cap so here's Sylvester and now he talks about the manner when he described the man jumping and then falling it was all in the wrist all the movement is now in the hand and it's very stylish <laughs> you know they're trimming these signs down but more to the point there was one thing she noticed that was really unexpected had nothing to do with movement couldn't help noticing that they that people different people in the community talked about different things in this story the older signers tended to describe all the events in this story and only the events and the younger kids They would talk about the guy's feelings. That this guy was trying to fly, wanted to fly, but failed. 
The kids, she says, just seem to be better at thinking about thinking, thinking like other people's thinking. So Anne and Jenny decided, let's take all the different generations of deaf kids. 40-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 10-year-olds. Let me test them on how well they can think think about thinking. So what they did was they showed everybody a comic strip, different from before. This one was about two brothers. There's a big brother who's playing with the train, and then the little brother is, like, wanting to play with the train, and the big brother's playing with the train. And then the big brother puts it under the bed and goes into the kitchen to eat a sandwich. And maybe before he goes, he looks at the little brother and says, Hey, don't touch my train. Don't touch it! And then little brother, while the big brother's out of the room, takes the train out and hides it in the toy box. And then the big brother comes back, and the question is, where's the big brother going to go to find his train? Is he going to look under the bed, or is he going to look in the toy box? Well, he's going to look under the bed. Yep. Because as far as he knows, that's where he left it. Yeah. He didn't see it move. And if you ask kids over the age of five, most of them would say he's going to look under the bed because that's where he left it. And he doesn't know that it's been moved to the toy box. But here's the thing. When she asked the older signers, they would say, oh, look in the toy box. Really? They would pick the wrong one. These are 35-year-olds. 35-year-olds would get this wrong? They would fail this task, yeah. Seven out of eight, she says. And then all of the younger signers that we worked with passed. At this point, she's just confused. Like, why would this be? Why can't the older people pass this simple test? You know, that involves thinking about someone else's thinking. What's going on here? And then it occurred to her, it might have something to do with certain words because the older signers, they don't really have that many words for the concept of thinking. I mean, they have mainly just one sign, pointing at your forehead. Yeah. Basically, you just point at your forehead with your index finger. But by the time you get to the younger kids... They've got tons of words for thinking. Things like, I know something and I know that you don't know it. I know something Uh, and I know you do know it. They've got a sign for understand, believe. Believe, remember, forget. How many roughly were there? 10 or 12. Wow. So from 30 years, we go from just a couple to... We went from like knowing and not knowing. To 12? Yeah. And somehow that makes all the difference, she says. The more of these think words you've got the more you can think. Am I right to say that? You're tiptoeing toward that, but maybe you don't want to go there all the way? Yeah, I'm trying to think that. I guess I I don't think it's so simple that you could just go in and say, hey, I'm going to teach you 10 signs today, and now suddenly you're going to have better cognitive capacity. But you are saying, though, that the verb think Uh is somehow implicated in my ability to think about your thinking. Right. Thinking about thinking. Understanding how other people understand. That's something that having language makes you better at. There are certain words, she says, that don't just give you a name for something. Somehow, they give you access to a concept that would otherwise be really hard to get. Or even talk about. It's really hard to talk about thoughts without the word thoughts. Or what is time without the word time? It's a really freaking hard concept. These words are like bridges. Somehow they get you to some new mental place that otherwise you'd be cut off from. But But that's sad though. I mean, these young kids have something that the people who actually invented the language don't. But we went back two years later, tested the same people. And then suddenly some of them were performing a lot better than they had the two years before on the same kinds of tasks. You mean the older signers? Yeah. They were passing suddenly? Some of them were passing, yeah. What happened? What happened in the past two years? Yeah. Those younger kids grew up and started hanging out at the Deaf Association. Wait, what? (laughs) So what had happened in the meantime... So here's the strange twist of the whole thing. The Deaf Association is this place where the older signers would hang out. Yeah, it's a social club. So they'd play chess, do whatever. Well, at a certain point, these youngsters start showing up, you know, because they've graduated and they want to hang out at the Deaf Association too. But they bring with them all of their new... Mental verbs. You know, all these words for thinking. They start using it with the older kids. The older kids pick it up. Suddenly these older kids are now passing the test. So there was learning that took place in adulthood that actually gives them new insight into other people's thinking and motivation, and now they could pass these tasks. That's super interesting. So that's the story. 
it's really cool. Anne Senghaas is an associate professor of psychology at Barnard College in New York. The thing, of course, you want you wonder is uh, once you've gotten these this new facility in you, like there's a lot of literature about this. My Fair Lady is about this. My Pe- Fair Lady is about this. Yeah, it's about a, a woman who learns uh, proper English and she can no longer be a flower girl in Covent Garden. Uh, She's now a lady. Yeah, I guess it is kind of like this. You want like remember the, our program began with the, the story of Ildefonso, right? Which we heard from Susan Schaller, Ildefonso was the guy who for 27 years had no language at all. So you kind of wonder... I mean, I can, I can tell you that Like, I, what happened uh, to Ildefonso once he got language? Right. And after that first breakthrough where Ildefonso realized things have names, Susan ended up leaving for a few years. Let's see. It was uh, about four years, I think. Four or five. But then she decided to write a book about him. And so I, um, I went and found him again. And he had language, and I could ask him all kinds of questions. Were you able then to sit down with him and ask him about his life and to really get the sort of his biography? Somewhat, somewhat. One um, area that everyone wants to know about is what was it like to be languageless? You know, what was going on in his head? Yeah. And I asked and I asked and I asked, and he starts telling me that was the dark time in his life. Learning language, it's, it's like the lights went on. And I tell him, well, we know about language, and we want to know what it's like not to have language. And he doesn't want to talk about it. But there was a day, she says, when she was writing the book, and she met Ildefonso in a restaurant. And there he was sitting with his brother Mario, who she never met before. And she quickly learned that Mario also was deaf. And languageless. Really? So I was shocked. And because I was so amazed, going, I, I can't believe you have a languageless brother... That's when, um, when Ildefonso said, well, let, let me introduce you to some of my friends. So they get in a car and they drive for a while. We stop at this apartment. We walk into this small little room. And there were these six Mexican men doing this mime routine. Wait, all these guys were like Ildefonso used to be? They had no language. Wow. They were all born deaf and they didn't know that they were deaf. And what, what were they doing? One man would stand up and he would start miming. He would just start acting out a bullfight. So he'd be the bull and he'd be charging and then he'd be the um, matador and then he'd be somebody in the crowd watching and then he would add a detail. For example... A hat. And then they'd swap. So then another guy would get up to take over the story. But they'd start miming. They'd reenact the matador. Describe the hat. But now the second storyteller would add a new detail. Like another person with a pair of glasses or something. So each one would stand up, take the bullfight, the same bullfight to a different <laughs> point and add a detail. Exactly, exactly. Oh my God. In other words, it would take him maybe 45 minutes to say, do you remember the time when we were at the bullfight and this woman did such and such? Wow. It was like drawing a picture. Let me ask you a, a, a pull-it-all-together question. I was about to think that what a language is is a great connector, but this last story makes me wonder. These are five men really sharing and connecting on details. So is the difference that language makes just efficiency, or does it affect your heart or your whole way of... I, I can't tell. I'm not sure anymore. Well, I'll, I'll give you Ildefonso's answer, which when I saw him um, a couple years later after this incident, I asked him about his friends, and he said he couldn't talk to them anymore. He, he wasn't willing to go through that tedious effort of all the miming anymore. But the interesting thing that he said was he can't even think that way anymore. He said he can't think the way he used to think. And when I pushed him to ask about what it was like to be languageless, he The closest he ever came to any kind of an answer was exactly that. I don't know. I don't remember. I think differently now. Susan Schaller is author of the book A Man Without Words. Go to radiolab.org for more info. And if you go there, or if you're subscribed to our podcast, you'll get this automatically. But there's a beautiful short film 
directed by two really talented guys, Will Hoffman and Daniel Mercadante, that is all about words. Message seven. Hi, this is Anne Sanghas, just back from Nicaragua, just in time to read in the credits. Radiolab is produced by Jad Abumrad and Pat Walters. Our staff includes Ellen Horn, Soren Wheeler, Rena Farrell, Lulu Miller, Tim Howard, and Lynn Levy. With help from Sharon Chaddock, Raymond Gungakar, Nicole Corey, and Sam Rowden. Special thanks to Posey Gruner. Bye-bye. End of message. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast.